This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us today through your Holy Spirit, giving us wisdom and understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Godfather, part two. The Empire Strikes Back. Aliens. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. The Dark Knight. These are arguably the greatest film sequels of all time. And there's a reason the list is so short. It's because no matter the medium, we tend to scrutinize sophomore efforts more than the original that preceded them. You know, the first one caught us by surprise, but now we're that much wiser because we know what to expect. We wait with our arms folded, ready to judge what comes next with our sharper eyes, sharper ears, and sharper tongues to verbalize why this time wasn't nearly as good as the first. So, as I begin my second sermon ever, let me just put it out there right from the start. This is not We Are For You, which is the title of my first sermon. There's no twist at the end. This is not about a dream I had. You're only allowed one of those. <laughs> um, I wish it was. You know, in fact, when Pastor Todd first asked me to uh, consider preaching again, uh, and he gave me the verses, it was Amos chapter 7 through 9, you know, I read it, and I told him I'd pray about it. And I did, which is true, but I prayed for a way out of it. Um, you know, after the positive, encouraging Romans 8, how could I return for a sequel with the fire and brimstone from Amos 7 through 9? So I prayed again, and I mean, I'm here, so you can see what the results of those prayers were. I wanted out, but God invited me to look closer at the text. What he showed me highlighted my initial misunderstanding of these verses. There was a before and after effect at work here, where what I saw before I prayed was distinctly different than what I was led to see after. And so today I'll share with you what was revealed to me. There were four parts to this revelation. There's the patience of God, there's the protection of God, there's the principle of God, and finally the purpose of God. But first, a quick recap on Amos. We've been going through the book of Amos for the last few weeks with Pastor Todd. You can catch up on watch.adventhope.org if you haven't seen it. But 
here's what's been going on. The people of Israel, they're on a roll. King Jeroboam, he's in the midst of a dominant 41-year reign over the northern kingdom as the military is all-powerful, the nation is wealthy, no other country in the world can stand against them. Nationalism is at an all-time high, which, depending on your politics, is either a good thing or a bad thing. But in all of this, there's just one problem, and that's that God is not pleased with his people. And so he sends a humble shepherd named Amos from the southern kingdom of Judah to come up to them and relay the message that Israel will suffer at the hands of a foreign power. So that's the prophecy going through the first six chapters of Amos, leading us right up to what I just read moments ago. And so let's just make sure we understand what happened in the text that I read. There's the three visions that God gave Amos. The first is a vision of locusts that decimated the land of Israel. Amos pleads for forgiveness. God relents. It won't happen. But that's strike one. So God comes back with another vision. And this time, fire destroys Israel. And again, Amos pleads for mercy. And again, God relents. But that's strike two. But now, now things get interesting. In the third vision, the Lord himself shows up. And he's standing by a wall with a plumb line in his hand. He's just chilling. You know, plumb lines, they're just they're used to make sure that a structure is straight. It's a string with a weight at the end of it. And God was standing by a wall that was upright. But his point was that if he held up this plumb line against the nation of Israel, it would be found lacking. It would be crooked. And so therefore, Israel would face destruction. So that's it. Strike three. They're out. And you know, before I prayed, I saw this as the destructiveness of God, his eagerness to destroy the disobedient. After I prayed, though, I saw this as the patience of God. So how did I get there? Well, I was led to 1 Kings 19 with the prophet Elijah. I don't know if you remember the story where after he defeated the, the prophets of Baal, he went on the run from Queen Jezebel, and he was hiding out in a cave. But God said, I want to speak to you. And so there was a windstorm, there was fire, there was an earthquake, and God wasn't in any of that. But then there was a still small voice, and that's how God was speaking to Elijah. Now, I saw that and I drew the parallel to what was going on in Amos, the locust, the, the fire, and then finally the still figure of God with the plumb line. He was not in the locust, he was not in the fire, he was the calm man standing there, which is that sometimes God does use loud things to get our attention. He may stop us in our tracks, but more often than not, he's speaking softly to us. And the problem is that our lives are too loud and we drown him out. This is what happened with Israel. You know, he had the right to wipe them out. They broke the covenant with him again and again, but he didn't. He was patient. You know, in fact, if the prophets of the Bible of the Old Testament, if they seem somewhat repetitive, it's because God was giving his people opportunity after opportunity to repent. And so he does the same with us today, doesn't he? I mean, imagine if God struck us down for every sin that we committed. None of us would be here. 
None of us. So, you know, this notion that God is, the Old Testament God is eager to destroy us and wipe us off the face of the earth, that's a false notion. Both the Old Testament and New Testament are consistent on this, contrary to popular belief. You know, we're familiar with the New Testament God after Christ. You know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But this language shows up in the Old Testament as well. Let's jump back to Ezekiel 33:11. This is God talking, as surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? This is a God who is wanting his people to come to him. He doesn't want them to suffer, and he's pleading with them. So God is patient with us, just as he was patient with Israel. But the thing is, that patience and kindness is not meant to be taken for granted. You know, we can shout, we can sing about how much we love God, but the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2-4 that we show contempt for God when we take advantage of his kindness and patience and refuse to turn to him for forgiveness. That's a strong word and a serious offense. You know, it reminds me of that saying, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Hearing that God is patient is not an invitation for us to while out until we're ready to, to get real with Jesus. When we struggle with sin in our lives, God is waiting for us to come to him, to repent, which is acknowledge our sin and turn from it, to accept his forgiveness, and to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, transforming our mind, which in turn transforms our behavior. Listen, it's a process. It takes time. It does. So don't be frustrated if you stumble along the way, but rather rejoice that you're on the path at all. I know, repenting is not a popular message today. It's not what I expected to be preaching, but it wasn't popular in Amos's day either. And in fact, it's never been popular. But my point is this. Don't picture the fire and brimstone rebuke. God is not in that. Rather, imagine the loving Savior with a plumb line in his hand and the still, small voice who cares for you and takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. This is the patience of God. And so if today's scripture, Amos 7 through 9, if this was a movie, the next passage would introduce us to the villain. In Amos 7, verses 10 through 13, we have a priest by the name of Amaziah. He doesn't like what Amos is saying. He interrupts the flow of this chapter. You know, in fact, other than God and Amos, Amaziah is the only other uh, person in the book of Amos to speak. And we're going to see that was a huge mistake. So first, Amaziah lies to King Jeroboam, and he says that Amos is plotting a conspiracy against him. That's false. Then he targets Amos specifically, and he says, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread and do your prophesying there. So he really dismisses him, saying, Get out. He calls him a seer, which is to suggest that his words are coming from Satan and not from God, that he's some sort of sorcerer or wizard. And then he instructs Amos to earn his bread back in his hometown, which is implying that Amos was doing this for money. It's just an insult after insult. 
And before I prayed, I saw this as the abandonment of God, allowing someone that he chose to be falsely accused and then leaving him to fend for himself. But after I prayed, I saw the protection of God. So the first thing to realize is that obedience to God means opposition from the enemy. And it seems that the greater the mission and the calling, the greater the opposition. Just think back to the films that I mentioned at the beginning. They're defined as much by the antagonist as by the protagonist, and sometimes even more so. Think about Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back, the T-1000 in Terminator 2, Alien in Aliens, and of course Heath, Ledger, Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. They're all iconic. When the stakes are at their highest, the opposition is at its strongest. And while that's fiction, you know this in your own personal life. I know this in mine, right? The time where God has maybe called you to something, something that's bigger than yourself, and you said, Lord, I will follow you. You relied on him, you took that chance, and then a flood of trouble, a flood of opposition that was tied specifically to that thing that you trusted him for. And then you're tempted to think you were better off before like the Israelites believing they were better off as slaves in Egypt than as free people in the wilderness. And sometimes we even blame God for these troubles when it's really Satan doing his thing, just like he did with Job. We have to remember that though weapons will form against us, God promises that they will not prevail. And I feel like Amos, he knew this because he responds to Amaziah's attempted character assassination in verses 14 and 15. He says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. So the second thing to realize is that when God calls someone to speak on his behalf, he gives them the words to speak. So I guess really this wasn't Amos responding, but this was God giving Amos the words to respond to Amaziah. And so it will be with us. Jesus, in Matthew 10, um, says that you're not to worry about what they say. If you get arrested, if anything happens to you, at that time you'll be given what to say. For it's not going to be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you, the Holy Spirit. And this is true not just in times of peril, but at any other time that God calls you to speak. Listen, I know this right now. I'm not a public speaker. This is not my comfort zone. This is not my forte. I'm speaking here because God called me to do this. I'm answering the call. He's empowering me. So every word I speak is coming from him. And you know this. Whatever God has called you to do, he's empowering you to do this. You know, I had a conversation with someone recently when I was talking about preaching, and they said, oh, man, I could never get up there and preach a sermon. And I said, you know what? Be careful what you say, because you're exactly the type of person that God will use up here. I said it. I'm here. So if any of you say that, you never know. You might be up here next. Um, God loves to cast people against type, because in that way, we're used to standing on our experience on our past, we've done this, but when we step aside and we do something that we have no experience doing, God gets all the credit. 
we have to rely on him. And so this brings me to the third thing, that the best way to serve God is with humility. And Amos did this. He acknowledges he has no legacy in prophecy. He does not come from a line of prophets. His dad was not a prophet. His grandfather was not a prophet. He's like, I was a shepherd, and I cared for trees. But this is the thing. He doesn't try to exalt himself. He doesn't try to get defensive. He knows that his credentials and his credibility, they don't come from his experience, but they come from the Lord himself. Which brings us now, after his response, to verses 16 and 17 of Amos 7. This is the equivalent, this is the and one passage, is what I call it. It's the equivalent of an and one in basketball. And it's why Amaziah should have never opened his mouth in the first place, right? For those of you who don't know and one, it's when it occurs when a player who's shooting the ball is fouled by an opponent in the act of shooting and makes the basket. So the basket counts, and because the player was fouled, he or she gets to go to the free throw line and shoot one free throw, thus the and one. It adds the insult to injury. So if we see here in, in this verse, if I can show you the parallel, Amaziah fouled Amos, that is, he falsely accused him, in the act of shooting or prophesying as Amos was doing. But not only does God tell Amaziah that the prophecy will happen just as Amos said, the basket is good, but that Amaziah will die in a foreign country, his wife will become a prostitute, and his children will be slaughtered. That's not just and one. That's and two. That's and three. That's flagrant two foul automatic ejection. <laughs> so listen, when the Lord calls you to do something, you will encounter opposition. Make no mistake about that. But more importantly, you can trust him that it will never be enough to stop you from accomplishing his purpose for you. This is the protection of God. So now that Amaziah has been silenced, God comes back to where he left off with Amos as we move into Amos chapter 8. God is like, you know, got rid of this dude, as I was saying, and he uses the example of ripe fruit to show Amos that the time is ripe for Israel to reap what they have sowed. And before I prayed, I saw this as the ruthlessness of God. After I prayed, I saw this as the principle of God. You know, verses 1 through 3, Amos 8, they sound a little bit harsh, but God does list the reasons for these consequences in verses 4 through 6, that the rich people of Israel were oppressing and cheating the poor people. So we see here they're trampling the needy, they're doing away with the poor of the land, they're selling um, short selling, skimping on the measure, cheating with dishonest scales, selling the sweepings with the wheat. So this is what's going on. And just as Pastor Todd, he covered the mistreatment of the poor and marginalized so well in this series, I'm just going to underscore it with this, that you cannot take advantage of others and expect God to bless you. But I'm not talking about material blessings. Remember, this rebuke in Amos, this is toward wealthy people. So this isn't about money or prosperity and material things. This is about the fruit of the Spirit. We need to redefine the way that we talk about blessing. I think in this 21st century Western society, blessing is too often associated with the material things. 
But the real blessing of God is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things do not exist in a, a context where you're mistreating others. And I just want to highlight this with two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. So we have Jeremiah 22:16. This is God speaking. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Listen, God could have said he recited all the scriptures verbatim, or he attended church every Sabbath, which are great things in the context of a genuine relationship with Christ, but he didn't say that. He said defending the cause of the poor and needy. That's what it means to know him. And we connect this idea of knowing God to Matthew 7, Jesus talking about Judgment Day, people saying, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name? Didn't we drive out demons, perform miracles? And he'll say, I never knew you. Away from me. That's really sad. You know, the thing is, these two passages are telling us that knowing God and God knowing us is directly related to how we treat others. They're telling us this, that that God is not impressed with miracles if we're not invested in justice for every person. And you know, I can't say exactly what that looks like for you, but I challenge you to ask God how he wants you to serve in this season of your life and who he wants you to serve. It could be serving the homeless. Um, Coming up on Tuesday, we visit uh, the Jan Hus Presbyterian Church, and Nye Simmons runs that uh, ministry, community service ministry, where we serve homeless there. Or there's um, the peace ministry that Brooke Pierce runs. There's many other ways, many other um, services and opportunities, not only in this church, but around the city to get involved. I don't know what God is asking of you, but I do know there's not one story in the Bible where God advocates serving only yourself. He said, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart. This is the greatest command, Jesus said. But he said, the second is just as important, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not, was not happening in Israel, which is why Amos was sent to them. But what, what was the cause of all this mistreatment? Why were the rich people mistreating the poor? You know, Pastor Todd, he spoke and talked about the lack of compassion that led the Israelites to treat the poor this way, and he's right. But equally true is that pride was a factor. In fact, in Amos chapter 6, verse 8, God says, I, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. God does not honor pride. In fact, we see in a few verses in Proverbs that he hates pride. He opposes the prideful person, as the Apostle James wrote, in part because they think they're the reason for their own success. I just worked harder. I'm just smarter. But it's God who even gives you the ability to to study well, to pick up concepts quickly, to earn the money that you earn, to create wealth. God is behind all of that. Does anyone know why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? I think both people inside the church and outside the church generally have the same idea that it's about the sexual sins that were going on 
the sexuality that was there. Most churches talk about this and most people understand this, but it's only a small fraction of the story. The fallacy is that it's made to look like the entire story. So let's actually see in the words of God himself in Ezekiel 16.49. He said, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Arrogant, prideful, overfed, greedy and gluttonous, unconcerned, apathetic, not helping the poor and needy. All of this, this the connection between the Israelites' actions and the, the prophecy of exile, all of this leads us to the universal principle of God, that whatever you sow, you will also reap. Stated clearly in Galatians 6, 7, it says God will not be mocked. It's universal in that it's both a physical law and a spiritual law. You know, you can't sow apple seeds and reap a pear tree. In the same way, you can't sow deception and reap trust. You can't sow discord on Facebook and Twitter and reap peace IRL in real life. You can't sow prideful mistreatment of others and reap the fruit of the Spirit. And so when you consider that, Amos 8 is not evidence of a ruthless God. It's simply the principle of God at work. Israel sowed seeds of hardship and injustice toward the less fortunate among them, and they would also reap hardship. In their case, there would be justice for their actions. Hebrews 10.13 says, You have planted wickedness, and you have reaped evil. And so, yes, Israel had actively planted but what about you didn't plant, you just stood by, you, you watched them plant, you watched it grow. I mean, actively mistreating the less fortunate is wrong, but Todd reminded us last week as well that complacency in the face of injustice is also complicity. Just imagine where we'd be if some of the men and women in history had refused to be comfortable and passive, but instead risked their lives to, to shine a light on injustice toward the marginalized and mistreated. Where would we be if people like Susan B. Anthony was complacent and was not compassionate? Um, where would we be without Mahatma Gandhi uh, fighting for uh, people that were marginalized by imperialism? What about Oscar Schindler putting his life on the line for Jews in the Holocaust? Or Rosa Parks also putting her life on the line for African Americans during the Civil Rights Movement? Cesar Chavez, what if he was complacent? He fought for the Latino migrant workers. Harvey Milk, he literally lost his life in a fight for LGBTQ rights. And even Colin Kaepernick, who is suffering just from his job, losing his job, not being able to be hired because he's taking a stand, or kneeling, as it were, for um, protesting against the treatment of minorities by law enforcement. These people refuse to be complacent. They put themselves on the line to call out injustice where it was happening. And so this is what Israel was refusing to do. And so the principle of God reaping what you sow, it doesn't stop there. It continues in Amos 8, probably to the most sobering passage where um, <clears throat> God is saying, Essentially, 
that these are the days where I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And, you know, I read this and I thought, oh, man, this is, this is really serious, a famine of, of the word of God. We'd have to be careful because this isn't a famine of the word of God. This is a famine of the hearing of the word of God, which is distinctly different. And it can take form in a number of ways. I'll just talk about three. The first is that church leaders don't preach all of God's word and they leave out teachings that may offend others or ruin their popularity. This is one way that the famine of the hearing of the word of God is produced. You know, Paul wrote in Galatians, if I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, John writes that the synagogue leaders, they believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't speak out. Why? Because they loved human praise more than praise from God. Encouragement is a duty of all Christians. You know, I stood up here in Romans 8, God is for you. But in a sense, the job of us, of, of those of us who teach and preach, it's also to hold up that plumb line, the word of God, by which sometimes you might feel uncomfortable because you don't measure up. You find yourself leaning this way or that way, but in the end, you surrender, you, you go to Christ. If we're not doing that, if we're not feeling uncomfortable, hopefully like last week, Todd's sermon made you feel a little uncomfortable. Where am I being complacent in my life? If we're not doing that, then we're contributing to the famine of the hearing of the word of God. Also, people refusing to listen to the word of God when it's preached because it makes them uncomfortable. So the word could be preached, but if you just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other, that contributes to the famine of the hearing of the word of God. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19 illustrates this. You know, Jesus, he came to Jesus and he said, I'm doing all these things, let's go. And Jesus said, well, great, just one thing you lack. He's like, go sell your possessions and also give to the poor. And then pick up your cross and come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. He heard the word of God right in front of him, the literal words of Jesus. But it was too much for him. He was too uncomfortable with what it would cost him. And that contributed to the famine of the hearing. Finally, parents neglecting to raise their children on the word of God. You know, in verse 13 of Amos 8, it says, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of their thirst. And the reason that these young folk will be first in the line to suffer is because they weren't taught where to satisfy their hunger or thirst. God was compartmentalized to just the Sabbath or just the spiritual activities instead of incorporated into the very fabric of their lives from when they were small. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20, and Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 have the same words. God is speaking to the Israelites and saying, teach my words to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you wake up, write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates, write them, tie them around your wrists, write them on your foreheads. The point is to be saturated with the word of God at all times. It's not just a one-day thing. You know, with foods, you make sure our kids have whole grain, organic, gluten-free foods, not just one day, hopefully, but all days. But what about the pure, unfiltered word of God, in which God says that man, 
woman, girl, boy, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So again, the calamities in Amos 8, they're the natural results of a continued neglect of God by the people of Israel. It's a matter of reaping what you sow. This is the principle of God. And finally, there's Amos 9, which kicks off as a continuation of consequences that the Israelites will suffer for their behavior. And before I prayed, I saw this as the punishment of God. After I prayed, I saw this as the purpose of God. And so verses 1 through 6, they do list what Israel will reap for what it's sown. It's, again, fire and brimstone imagery. And then verse 7 pauses for a, uh, a, a brief, I guess, uh, commercial break, shall we say. And so you have God saying here, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? And he compares them also to the Philistines and the Arameans. Now, this may not seem like a big deal now, but it was a huge deal. Israel was the chosen nation. These were nations that didn't serve God, and they didn't serve the God. They had other gods, Baal and whatnot, and God is saying, you're the same to me as they are. That's almost blasphemous if it weren't from God himself. Now, in the New Testament, that makes sense. I mean, Paul said after Jesus Christ is like the Greek and the Jew, there's no difference, male and female. But in this time, in the Old Testament, to even compare the Israelites, for God to say there's no difference between Philistines and Israelites is mind-blowing. So let's, let's bring it to, you know, current context. Like if God said there's no difference between Christ Church and Advent Hope, right? We get uncomfortable with that. Or if God said there's no difference between, um, you know, are not the, the Baptists the same to me as the Adventists? I mean, that kind of language is, makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, we're Adventists, right? I mean, the idea that we would be equated with Baptists or Presbyterians, that's what this is like. And the idea of Adventist exceptionalism, as Todd talked about last week, it's not a biblical truth, right? We're not any more special in God's eyes. There's only one method of salvation. That's the blood of Christ. That's it. Anything else, we try to elevate ourselves. You're not saved by your dietary habits. You're, you're not saved because you keep the Sabbath perfectly. You're saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is what he's saying here. Everyone is on equal ground. So that's the quick commercial break he makes. And then he comes back after eight and a half chapters of relentless prophecy. We have this chapter, this, this verse, where God is saying, I will destroy Israel from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. So we have, after all of this, the first glimmer of hope, the first glimmer of hope, not totally destroy. And then building on that, in verses 11 through 15 of Amos 9, we see the ultimate purpose of God revealed, that he does not want to punish his people, but ultimately to purify them for a blessing, so that they in turn will be a blessing to others. 
Specifically, God wants to repair broken walls. He wants to rebuild the ruins. He wants to restore the land, and he wants to reunite with his people. God allowed the Israelites to reap what they had sown. These are the consequences of their sins. But thankfully, he didn't stop there with them. And thankfully, he does not stop there with us. God always forgives us when we repent, though he won't always remove the consequences of our sinful actions. In fact, God may use those very consequences to help us. It's a form of discipline, if you will, just as our parents disciplined us. You know, Hebrews 12:10, it says that, you know, our earthly parents disciplined us the best they, they knew how, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. It's painful, right, at the time. But if we let it run its course, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. This is what God wants to do. He wants to produce that harvest of righteousness and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit in those who follow him. We can't do this ourselves. We cannot manufacture this type of fruit ourselves. Remember uh, Romans 7, the, the sermon that Jael preached back in July, where Paul is like, the things that I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. That's our struggle. This is our struggle. We can't produce this harvest. But the good news is that we don't have to. The harvest is possible and only possible through the completed work of Christ on our behalf and the indwelling, the daily indwelling of the Holy Spirit. To accept God's work on our behalf and to walk with him daily, ultimately being united with him in eternity, this is the purpose of God. So when you step back and you look at Amos 7 through 9, you reconsider these verses, hopefully you see a model of the gospel, right? Christ, he is our patient savior. Christ, he is our loving protector. In Christ, we exchange the principle of punishment for the principle of grace. And now walking in the light of that grace and mercy, he's calling us into his purpose, a restored relationship with him and with our fellow brothers and sisters in humanity or to state it in the format of this message, before we came to Christ, we were like the Israelites, just living selfishly, just to satisfy our own sinful desires. You know, the Bible says the penalty for that is eternal separation from God. If we sowed that sin, what we should reap is eternal separation. But herein is the gospel. That instead of us being exiled like the Israelites, it was Jesus Christ himself who came to earth as a man who was separated from our Heavenly Father and suffered the punishment that we deserved so that after, after, after Christ's death and resurrection, now we can benefit from his right standing with God and have access to eternal life through believing in him and accepting the work he's done on our behalf. So ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, may we all experience this transformation, the greatest before and after ever known. Amen.